All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast Spotlight Series. Today I'm with Katie Trouth Taylor, who is the founder of Narratize. So, really looking forward to this episode. Uh, Katie is in uh, Cincinnati or Northern Kentucky area? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> we, we sort of, if you're from around here, you can say either one. Everybody says yeah. we're from Cincinnati usually. I personally live in Northern Kentucky. Okay. Where's the company base? Where do you where do you list your headquarters? Yeah, we're headquartered in Northern Kentucky as well. Nice. Good. All right. Well, this is Kentucky podcast, so I knew our audience would want to know that. <laughs> that uh, was the first test. Yes. Great. Uh, well, I was looking forward to this episode because um, generative AI and AI in general right now is such a hot topic. Uh, you are right in the middle of it, building a very cool product. So looking forward to kind of diving into the details and sharing with our audience what that space looks like and what it's like to build in right now. Um, I'm actually developing uh, an AI product as well right now. So um, I'm looking forward to picking your brain on the space personally. So just to kind of get us um, out of the gate here, give us you know your background and how it led up to Narratize and the journey you're on now with that company. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm a serial founder. So this is my second startup. Over the last decade, I've been uh, spearheading a first company called Untold Content, and it was an innovation storytelling company. And so our mission was to accelerate innovation through storytelling. And we found through our research that companies and brands who would get story right and get message market fit were much more likely to have traction in the marketplace and survive long term and outpace their competitors. So sometimes people hear the word story and sort of think it's a fluffy uh, art. And that's true. It is an art, but it, there is actually science behind story and the ways in which different narratives create meaning and impact um, and, meet, and meet their purpose, that that all sort of, um, that that's the, the art and science of innovation storytelling is really around how different communications can help support speed to market and message market fit. But rewind a little bit before I was a founder, um, I did my PhD at Purdue University in narrative science. And that is a field that's sort of a discipline that parallels in some ways computer science, neuroscience, and really it's around the study of language patterns, uh, narrative patterns, computational patterns, how they make meaning, how you build narrative algorithms and identify it, um, how you do qualitative research. So that's the background of who I am. And I started as a research professor after I did my PhD and um, did that for a couple of years, but my first company started taking off and growing and I let, decided to lean in and I, I uh, have loved dancing on the edge of the volcano ever since. Wow. Love that. Did you have any inkling of uh, kind of how technology and, you know, language processing and, you know, the kind of algorithms you were already building, probably mental algorithms maybe, but dive more into now the convergence of that PhD background, what you were studying and what we're seeing now, and if you foresaw any of that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was interesting. I'd say 10 years ago when I founded my first company and we started supporting Fortune 500 and series funded startups, I saw so many different interesting technologies and business models and ways to scale disruptive technologies. And so with my narrative science background, and then that sort of interesting window into so many different companies, uh, five years ago, 
I put on our five-year plan that we would become a technology company one day. We were going to figure out a way to scale these incredible insights and algorithms around narrative and to help organizations do that seamlessly on their own. And so that was the big picture vision. And we began just putting small pieces into place that ultimately became big boulders that started, you know, rolling down the hill. And one of those pieces was two years ago, we became one of seven developer ambassadors into open AI, which essentially means we're sitting in on, you know, weekly meetings, getting early access to model updates, and we're able to start building our team's expertise in prompt architecture and prompt engineering at a time when most people hadn't heard about this thing called GPT and uh, generative AI. So that was the early, early foundation of Narratize. And it came to right as we were starting to like one, one of the, the boulders that I'm using this metaphor, of, like the boulder that was started to like pick up pace and run downhill. Um, we started to interview and do customer discovery with the amazing brands that we were supporting my first company. And, and so we started asking and, and, and engaging in qualitative research. And ultimately what we did was collect a hundred different customer discovery interviews and concept what is now narratized. And in the process, uh, unearth some really fascinating insights around innovation storytelling and began noticing that there were patterns of narrative that you could map to different research and development and innovation contexts. Um, and I can share more about what that means, but like one quick example would be the way that someone explains to a consumer um, a new improvement to a product is very different than how they explain a technology that could totally change how that consumer is gonna live five years down the road. And one of the pieces of infer, like one of the inferences we were able to make was if you use a metaphor to talk about a really disruptive future, it will lose the audience immediately. It's like too much cognitive overload for a consumer who's testing out a product. You're not going to get great feedback um, if you use that narrative algorithm inside of that type of pitch. And so you have to really listen and see where narrative algorithm shows up in different contexts to get to the outcome that you're looking for. And describe uh, narratizes technology a bit. So um, give us, you know, an image if I'm a user using your product, what am I seeing and what am I doing? And what's the problem it's solving? Definitely. So, so part of that discovery, what we heard was it's so difficult to go from the seed of an idea, whether that's coming from uh, someone in research and development or someone in product or IT or heck, the person, you know, sweeping the floors inside of the company. And a great idea can come from anyone. It's very difficult to go from the seed of an idea to get the buy-in and get the clarity that it needs from the stakeholders who hold the budget decisions inside of a company and pull that all the way through to marketing and communications uh, to actually get message market fit and bring something to life to outpace competitors. That was the pain point that we heard, right? Research and development don't speak the same language as Marcoms or leadership or operations. How do we create enterprise level innovation storytelling to help the whole company move forward faster? And so Narratize is designed as the generative AI storytelling platform for innovative enterprises. 
And the way that it works is depending on your function, depending on who you are as a professional, um, you can get different uh, outcomes out of narratize. But let's say that you are a scientist inside of a research and development function inside of a large enterprise. Narratize will help you write pitches, problem statements, memos, decks, one pagers, all of the content that you need to create as part of your everyday work. And at the enterprise level, we customize the way that those teams use Narratize. It's designed as a human-led AI, which means it does not replace the person. It elevates the person. It asks the user questions. And so uh, we designed it very intentionally to be a reverse chatbot experience. So instead of being met with a blank page and a blinking cursor and having to go spend the thousands of hours that it does take to be a senior level prompt engineer and extract really rich thought leadership quality expert level content out of a large language model, it asks the user questions instead. So you're met with those questions and you, your insights are pulled from you. And then from there, for the user, it magically transforms your insights into fully created deliverables from white papers to one pagers. And that, if you're in R&D, right, you're able to create a summarized version and, and transform it into something that stakeholders and leadership can understand and activate on. Um, and then from there, it can go to Marcoms, who can start distilling it and amplifying it into thought leadership. So it's really meant to facilitate collaboration across divisions, and it's really meant to be a trusted co-author that gets accuracy right in long form and other types of content. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I think there's a few things I pulled out of that. Um, number one, you know, technical writing is very difficult. And the difficulty of adopting AI for businesses and enterprises these days is that the use cases just aren't clear. You know, I think that OpenAI dumped ChatGPT on the world, and now we're starting to see what its limitations are. It's great in a lot of B2C context. <clears throat> it's great for brainstorming and just having a conversation with a large language model. But where I think the world is now starting to, um, the world of AI is starting to evolve and, and see a potential is in the B2B use cases. Um, and I think what you're doing is creating a collaborative experience because ChatGPT uh, is not collaborative. You know, one person's chatting with it in an org, the other person's having a fragmented conversation over here. So that level of fragmentation makes it hard to do what you're doing. And so you've created a great workflow and a use case around a large language model for a particular problem, which is technical writing and, and storytelling. So it makes a ton of sense. And I think the collaboration piece is, is really key, but the, also, the other hard part about businesses adopting uh, LLMs and just generative AI right now is kind of that content management and data problem. Um, mm -hmm. So how are you taking data from across an organization, the blogs and copy they've already written previously, and then incorporating that into your platform and then using prompt engineering to kind of spit out exactly what they're looking for? Because, you know, ChatGPT does not do a great job of that today. Even their ChatGPT for Enterprise doesn't do a great job of that. So how are you differentiating uh, when it comes to absorbing enterprise and business data and then spitting out via workflow? Yeah, the, the data architecture and capabilities are really what make Narratize Narratize. And so when we partner with an organization, an enterprise, we 
we go through a proven process that is a three-part process. It's engage, execute, and embrace. And in the engage phase, we are getting alignment with the customer on their KPIs. What outcomes are you looking for from uh, leveraging generative AI to elevate your workflows that already exist? We ask questions like, what use cases would be most beneficial? Tell us about your existing workflows, the types of content you have to create. And then the beautiful thing is our, our team has been doing that work hands-on with enterprises the last decade. And so for so many different contexts, we already really richly understand that. Um, we, we, for instance, you know, every year for the last few years, we've published a state-of-the-field report on innovation storytelling. And surprisingly, to a lot of executive leaders, we found that their research and development professionals, their product teams, and their innovation teams, they spend 30% of their work week just writing, writing investment memos, writing pitches, writing uh, problem statements, looking for feature requests, user stories, all of that type of content. And that's a significant amount of time for very high talent individuals um, who probably, you know, typically inside those same, those same state of the field reports would say less than 50% of them feel like they do the work of writing really well. <clears throat> they struggle to get buy-in and it's very discouraging when one of their really br potentially brilliant, more technical or scientific ideas can't get off the lab bench or can't get off the shelf because um, they're really not typically the most effective communicators or haven't been trained to do that work. That's not their superpower. And Narratize is really designed to help um, enable them with that superpower as a co-author. You were asking a question yeah. um, and I think I lost it. <laughs> well, it was just, you know, the the data. How do you think about and right, how do right. you I'm provide your, your LLM yeah. on your platform yeah, yeah. with context? Yeah, absolutely. So at the enterprise level, um, like I said, the data architecture is what makes Narratize Narratize. So we're able to build several different, uh, we call them guardrails against large language models. It's what lends to the higher accuracy outputs inside of Narratize. We build uh, we build those guardrails based on industry best practice or sub-industry best practice. We partner with our customers using their data in a secure and private way. We never use our customers' data to train any LLMs um, or to train our models. And everything is deeply protected. It's, it's why we've won such incredible customers like NASA, like uh, Good Housekeeping Institute. And, um, and, and we're just so grateful to be scaling as quickly as we are because the level of accuracy that, that is output from Narratize is so rich thanks to the way that we've designed our knowledge bases um, and you know, vector bases. And then we're able to work with customers and, like I said, engage, execute, and then embrace. We're identifying their workflows. We're um, really, it's interesting. We found the revolution in AI foundational models and in training is a large part thanks to the fact we you don't have to use millions of data points in order to train and, and get extract a lot of value from large language models. And so that's exciting for uh, the enterprises that we partner with because they're able to share um, examples. We already understand their context. And from there, we're able to train and build the AI workflows. And, and for us, we, we've really committed, although we've been open AI ambassadors for a long time, so working with GP, GPT for a long time, we're committed to being large language model agnostic. And so 
where we create knowledge bases for customers um, in collaboration with them. We're able to then build AI workflows across multiple large large language models and extract the best from each one. And that in itself has just been um, such a fascinating technical challenge to overcome. Yeah, it's interesting how Anthropic's going about it in a different way than maybe OpenAI or some of the yeah. open source ones. And they're all different and, and have their own strengths and weaknesses. So being agnostic and having like model composability, uh, I yeah. think is a huge part going forward of, of how enterprises are going to need, you know, their tools exactly. to adapt. But uh, I want to hear your, your personal opinion on if you think the conversational user experience is going to be the primary one for large language models, or if that's just um, kind of its its first user experience. You know, I think conversational user experiences with LLMs make a ton of sense for, you know, a long tail of uh, problems and uh, reasons to use a large language model. But um, are you seeing that businesses... Uh, that that limits workflows? That how, how are you thinking about, you know, if conversation is the best way to leverage a, a large language model, because, you know, there's so much more that can sit on top of a large language model. Um, and conversation kind of makes it hard to collaborate, to share data, to actually build workflows. So what, what's your thoughts on conversation? And if that's going to stick as the top user experience with these large language models? I love this question. I think, you know, the chatbot experience is what everyone's sort of become accustomed to over the last several months, as most people have experimented with ChatGPT. And um, there was a recent study, a senior level writer who writes white papers for a living entered 150 different prompts into ChatGPT to get a sort of C minus intern written level white paper not really usable by the company. And it took hours and hours. You know, we really designed Narratize intentionally to not be a chatbot in order to help speed up that expertise and speed up your enterprise's ability to get the most value out of generative AI technology so that you don't have to sort of stop thousands of people in their tracks and say, everyone go learn how to be a prompt engineer and figure out what to ask the LLM to get the value that you need. We don't think that's feasible and realistic for most people in an enterprise. And uh, while I'm the biggest fan of folks who have completely geeked out about this and like embraced prompt engineering, and I do think every professional should expect to be uh, aware of prompt engineering and have a, uh, at least an entry understanding of it to be successful long-term. I think if we design systems and user experiences really solidly in a way that maximizes everybody's superpowers, everyone will be better off and will actually enable the enterprise to get the most out of the tech faster and, and therefore compete better. So I think, um, yeah, I guess the, the chatbot experience puts so much responsibility on the user and uh, to go figure out what to prompt it, what to ask, how to get the most out of it. And we've really, you know, done that in a reverse way to help to help prevent that and, and to help people get get more out faster. Before highlighting our sponsors, we'd just like to state that the views and content shared on this platform do not necessarily reflect those of our show sponsors. Middletech is presented by KY Innovation, the Kentucky Cabinet for Economic Development's Office of Entrepreneurship. KY Innovation exists to support and develop Kentucky's startup ecosystem, and we are proud to be supported by an organization whose mission aligns so closely with ours. 
If you're a founder building in Kentucky, you need to check out the resources that KY Innovation has to offer. You can find more information by clicking the link in our show notes or going to kyinnovation.com. Middle Tech is sponsored by Bolt Marketing. Take your website to the next level with a website that's built to work. At Bolt Marketing, they're revolutionizing websites for small businesses that are affordable, customizable, and hassle-free. Whether you have a construction company, a boutique clothing store, or you own a hot yoga studio, they have options for you. Click the link in our show notes to explore their marketing options that can transform your marketing and grow your business. And as a personal note, Bolt Marketing built our website and they were awesome to work with throughout the entire process. We highly recommend working with them. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and the product I'm developing has that same ideology that prompt engineering has to be abstracted away in the B2B context. Because again, you can't, mm. you can't believe that your employees are going to become prompt experts and you can't you know, educate them on that and expect them to become experts. That's like saying uh, when computers were invented, everybody has to become a developer now. Everybody has to know how to code. You know, it, it, prompt engineering is going to get more and more technical as time goes on and these LLMs exactly. absorb more data and you have to consider, you know, what the output is. They're just going to become more and more complex. And so there needs to be abstraction layers for businesses over these large language models that take away the need for it to be a conversation and, and just build straight workflows that are actually powered and emerge out of the LLM, in my opinion. Um, I 100% agree with kind of your approach. And I think that's what's been holding back the B2B cases is to date a lot of the uh, companies being built in the generative AI space or developer tools and building infrastructure. And now that we have that infrastructure, I think now it's a great opportunity for founders to build abstraction layers on top of these LLMs for you know, workflows. Um, so I think it's a really exciting time to be building if you have you know, proprietary data or unique workflows to, to build with. Um, a couple questions more here on generative AI. Uh, what's the hardest part of building uh, in the generative AI space right now? The noise. Yeah, yeah, there's so much noise. I think um, there's so much excitement and um, really making it clear where differentiation lies is is so important. Um, there's also, I think, too, um, there's still apathy, especially in risk averse industries who, uh, you know, there's some apathy around like, well, let's just wait and see. Everything is so noisy. Let's kind of let the dust settle and then we'll make our choice and then we'll choose the right solution after we've seen some things play out. I think, um, so we're recognizing like which industries and sub industries are early adopters and which ones are going to be more follow, you know, follow on later. Um, and, and we're starting to get a little savvier about that in, in terms of our go to market. But I think um, ultimately, if enterprises wait too long, they are going to um, that it's going to be really difficult to keep up with the speed at which innovation and communication can happen now thanks to this technology. And like to your point, all of the excitement uses for data, um, the ways in which you're able to, you know, transform the way knowledge work happens inside of your enterprise with this technology. If you slow that down and you delay too long, um, I, I think it's going to be really challenging to to keep pace with those who are adopting it early. And I would say that the tone in the marketplace from, from my perspective, you know, in, in having these conversations all day, every day with incredible enterprises, I think the tone has certainly shifted over the last six months. Six months ago, there was a lot more apathy 
today, um, coming into Q4 2023, I would say um, almost every enterprise now has generative AI as a strategic imperative at the C-suite level coming down. That's really different than six months ago. I think there was still certain, you know, levels of caution um, and 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 sort of let's wait and see. Now I, I hear a lot more. Um, in a great McKinsey report just came out called uh, Gen AI's breakout year. So it's really worth reading. Um, if you check that report out, one of the stats is that 93% of companies are buying generative AI solutions today, and most of them are using three or more. There's, of course, interesting debates around like the build or buy solution. Uh, do you stand up an IT team to go after this? Um, do you choose solutions that are existing in the marketplace? So I, th I think those are some of the complex um, and to, to the question we, or to the point we already made, right? Do we upskill everyone? How realistic is that? What solution do we go with for that? Um, if we just stand up ChatGPT, your investment in upskilling becomes monumentally larger um, than if you choose solutions like Narratize, right? Where we're building workflows alongside you and customizing them to your teams and their needs um, and in helping you extract that value faster. So I think um, those are some of the questions that enterprises are are having to ask and to work through and, um, and they'll, they'll answer them in, in different ways, I think. And it'll all kind of ultimately determine how they best use this technology and how they can really help it contribute to not just the exciting productivity gains that we've heard so many B2B use cases talk about, but ultimately revenue gains and speed to market is what it has to be about. How do you go from the seed of an idea, communicating it effectively, getting it through the stage gate process and out the door with effective message market fit um, faster than your competition. I think that's that's why we've built Narratize to do that work because we think that's where the most value lies uh, for enterprises. Yeah, I think a lot of that noise, you know, I've always, I've been tracking the um, investment into the journey of AI space. And a lot of the noise is due to the fact, I think that, you know, there's been so many of these companies, and this happens with every major technology cycle. Uh, you know, happened to dot com, um, it happened with uh, crypto and kind of Web three. But you have this this influx of founders just trying to build anything. And what's ended up happening in the generative AI space, in my opinion, is so many commodities um, have been built. You know, just you know, wrappers put a quote around. Yeah, wrappers that were GPT exactly. Um, yeah. You know, there's so many products that are being built that are treating the large language models as the product in and of itself. And I think the correct way to get through the noise mentally is to look at these large language models as just a piece of the architecture that's no different than S3 or, uh, you know, something like a Twilio. You know, it's just a piece of your architecture that you incorporate into your workflows that make them better. It's not the thing in and of itself. And I think that's where some of the noise has been coming and people get confused is there's this influx of tools that are treating large language models like the thing, like the product in and of itself. But the thing, I think the companies are going to win that are going to get through the noise are the ones that are just viewing it as a piece of architecture that is a small component or maybe a medium or large component of just an overall uh, platform yeah. that you're building. I and so I think agree. that's where the noise is. Yeah, I completely agree. And then I think the ones that are leveraging really smart, interesting proprietary methodologies around knowledge-based design and vectors and uh, use of data. Those are the ones that I think investors are paying the most attention to. I think that's where um, if you are an enterprise leader and you're working to make your decisions, you should be evaluating solutions based on 
um, how much it is just sort of a UX wrapped around a foundational model and how much of it actually has really, um, really exciting data architecture to help you get the most, uh, you know, help you get the most nuanced and rich um, guardrails around what what is extracted from those foundational models. So that's I, I'm in complete alignment with you, and I, I hear that same that same kind of concern. Yeah, and then on like the enterprise front and why they need to be moving quickly, you know, the faster an enterprise can create the data pipelines and just get the data there in general that's proprietary to them, um, to be prepared to integrate with some of these unique architectures, the better. And I'm seeing a lot of companies hire a director of AI before they even have a like a like a need for them. They're saying, hey, I'm going to hire a director of AI, and then they're just their job is to figure out how to incorporate AI without you know they even being uh, a job description. Um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to see that and uh, it'll be interesting to see how those roles play out and how enterprises, uh, you know, build versus buy. I think what you said there was interesting. Um, I think just like uh, many other uh, use cases for technology, you know, you're going to see them buy because they're just not going to have the resources or technical expertise to keep up with how fast everything's going. And again, they just need that abstraction layer, I think, between uh, how quickly the architecture is moving and what their own unique use cases are. Um, but ultimately, it'd be a mix, and it'll depend on the resources of yeah. the business and, and what their technical staff is, because most a lot of enterprises don't have the technical staff to do it, so they have to buy it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that they're, when you're in that role in, in the SVP or, or C-suite level of, of IT and you're managing so much, you're really a steward of every aspect of the technology and its rollout, your steward to security and privacy requirements and um, really choosing the right partners is so critical. So, um, so, so yes, I, I just agree wholeheartedly. I think to have those same teams also have to become experts in narrative science and prompt architecture. Um, and of course, there are already typically amazing data scientists within large enterprises, but um, they'll, they'll have to make those calls where they stand up certain talent. Um, there's always going to need to be collaboration and support with implementation and rollout and activation and, um, and, and risk review processes and things like that. But ultimately, um, the type of expertise required to do narrative science in this new world is is fairly hard to find. Um, we're proud. You know, one of the things we've we've done this year is we're um, an MIT computer science and artificial intelligence lab company. And so that relationship with MIT CSAIL has been really phenomenal in helping us design, again, that that middle stuff that makes narratize narratize all of the architecture and the guardrails that we're able to put up on those LLMs and the talent required to pull that off. I think as enterprises work to decide who to buy from and who to partner with, they should be watching for uh, things like uh, team dynamic, uh, talent, and um, of course, outcomes and KPIs. And also uh, just generally, and I'll put this plug out there too, diversity of founders. Um, you know, 0.3% of venture capital went to women founders of AI companies and 80% of the venture funds um, 
in AI companies went to all male founding teams. And so historically, AI has been really criticized for the ways that that foundational models were biased in their training. And, um, and I'm excited for us to change some of those statistics together and, um, and for customers to to recognize where they're going to leverage different capabilities, thanks to that, uh, thanks to new mindsets and the ways that we can train it around unique discourse communities. Um, I imagine all the possibilities that that's going to lead to when it comes to reaching audiences and reaching populations um, and ensuring that your brand's reputation remains um, inclusive and and successful in reaching diverse populations too as you scale. Yeah, no, that's so important. And the bias issue with models is something that I think a lot of people are trying to solve. Luckily, you know, I think the open source community uh, is really making a big stand on that. And there's a ton of companies I know working hard on that because it's so important. The earlier we solve that, the better, because uh, the longer we let that go, the more deeper into the models they're going to be trained and the more, uh, you know, that's just going to um, accentuate and, and work its way into businesses. So the faster we can get more diverse models and, and data to input into models, uh, the better. Um, what's it like shifting away from generative AI here? What's it been like being in a Kentucky company? So talk to us about, you know, your decision to base it in Northern Kentucky. You know, it sounds like you could have based it anywhere, San Francisco, you could base it in Boston now, you know, why Northern mm -hmm. Kentucky and what advantages do you see? Uh, and what's that experience been like? Uh, there's a company that recently, uh, you know, was stood up here in this in this region, and um, a year or so ago, went through an, a beautiful exit. And the founder said, "The reason I built here is because we had two engineers turnover in five years, um, while my founder friends on the coast had the highest turnover rates and were constantly looking for new talent, fighting for new talent." There is a level of grit and determination and loyalty and collaboration that I think is part of the spirit of this region. And it's uh, exciting. I think that's one of the number one sort of corporate culture benefits of uh, being in the region that we're in. That plus, I think, where we've been operating for the last decade in a remote way. So we really leverage talent from the coast. We have team members from California to Boston to Michigan um, and, of course, Kentucky and Ohio. And I think it lends to beautiful diversity. It leads to better market traction across um, enterprises that are, have headquarters in, in various parts of the U.S. And that's all been really wonderful and, and helpful. And I think everybody talks about that when they talk about our regions. The collaborative spirit is real. The energy to support startups partnering with large enterprises is also real. Um, and so those are some of the key reasons. Plus, I would be remiss to not mention the fact this is home for me. And I'm a founder with four young kids and the ability to sustain the level of risk required to be an innovative founder 
while also managing my life outside of work, uh, which of course, as all of us are embracing is, is all woven together in messy, beautiful ways. Um, I need my family here to support me in raising mine. And I wouldn't be able to do that as a founder um, and give them the life that, that I'm so grateful they get to have in probably any other region. Yeah. You know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and just you know, follow so many founders and, and obviously most of them end up being on the coasts. And I think, you know, when I asked that question to a lot of founders around here, it is interesting they bring up the the idea of being home. And I think there's something to that component and the fact that people bring up that along with family. And I think that that is just, again, what makes founders around here a little bit different is we have different values. We are gritty in different ways. And I think the fact that we value uh, home and family so much makes it easier to be collaborative because when you're in a place where you're, it's not your home, you don't care about it as much. And I think you see that on the coast where founders might not bring up the fact they have a family or that it's their home and it's all about business. And I think that's to your point, there's more loyalty, uh, there's more grit that comes along with a family attitude and just kind of thinking of something as home. And I, I, I kind of have been noticing that the more podcasts we do here in Kentucky and the more I listen to from founders on the coast, uh, it's very typical that founders here bring up the feeling of home and collaboration and often without even uh, uh, thinking about it, bring up family. And I think that that's important. So that's awesome. Uh, what, what can our region improve on? Uh, wh what can we do better that you notice uh, is maybe holding you back a bit? I'm excited to see our region begin to embrace direct investing in, in founders a little bit more. I think traditionally uh, there's been a little bit more of like a fund of funds approach. There's been an approach to like um, if you're an investor regionally, you go outside the region to be LPs and other funds. Um, but those funds sometimes don't actually make it back to the founders in our region. So I'm excited to see that transform right now. Um, and then I think other pieces of advice that that I have, I, we really needed to, ironically, we really needed to leave the region to get venture capital start, really to get traction with with VCs, and so that was really important. Ironically, our first capital came from an investor out of New York while we won a pitch competition in LA as a Kentucky headquartered startup. So, um, does geography really matter a ton today? I, I think like. Right. To your point, perhaps when it comes to founder values, founder lifestyle, the level of risk required to be a founder um, effectively and sustain it over so many years, like all of those things, I think, are the reasons why um, the reasons why we call home where we call it. And then uh, I, I think just having a global mindset and embracing remote collaboration and getting on a plane and, and going, you know, it's not too hard to do that. Um, at least where I live, right? I'm 15 minutes from an airport. I'm in New York or San Francisco or Seattle or Boston or DC, uh, at least once a month. And, um, it's fun. It's, it's really not too difficult. And now there are all these crazy, like, uh, flight subscriptions you can yeah. buy to, yeah. to help with that collaboration. And I mean, um, so, so I guess that's my advice is for investors in the region to continue to um, evaluate and recognize regional talent um, and, and not necessarily have bias towards coastal talent. I think um, we probably would have gotten funded faster and it would have been easier uh, if 
I had birthed this company, uh, right in Palo Alto and, um, then came to Cincinnati and asked for, for VC funds. It's funny. Um, I'm, I'm glad to see that starting to shift. Yeah. I experienced the same thing. So on, on Simba, it took me six months to raise about 300,000 in Kentucky. And then it took me three weeks to raise another 300,000. And when I got to San Francisco, um, so yep. it's crazy I mean. how different it is. And now that that, uh, has run its course and, and that, that business has exited, I, I'm going to go straight to the coast next time. Like you said, of course, I want to make sure that <laughs> local investors so get involved. But yeah, exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna open up the market on the coast because they have better valuations. They're gonna invest faster. They're gonna get you the money faster. Uh, they're not gonna beat you up on the note, whether it's convertible debt or, or safe. Um, and they're just gonna move and they're gonna get you the money. And then you can come back to Kentucky and say, "Hey, I've created a market. Here's what the terms are. Jump on or don't." And so I think that that's yeah. what founders need to try to do as much as they can is get as get to the coast as fast as you can because it expands your market. You have a wider variety of uh, terms and they're probably going to be more favorable on the coast and then come back and say, hey, uh, I would love to get you all involved. Uh, here's what it looks like. And um, But of course, now that's a, a luxury from my perspective because I've been through it and it's harder as a first-time founder. But I would still yeah, encourage really first-time founders to get to the coast. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the beautiful thing too is if that feels deeply intimidating because it is really an introduction game, it's a networking yeah. game. Yeah. There are every single VC in the region, in our sort of Midwest region, is connected to yeah. almost every VC yeah. in every other region. And so, you know, leverage those relationships, build meaningful relationships, provide value on both sides and keep them informed of your progress. Um, keep your regional mentors and champion investors informed of your progress and ask them for the introductions. That's that's what's made our proc, proc, uh, fundraising go a lot more smoothly now than it was when I first started on that journey and, and sort of just wanted to shout to the rooftops, like, why don't you see the value? Uh, why do I have to leave the region to, to prove it? Um, so I, I hope that keeps changing. Yeah. Here, we're, we're bringing voice to it right that's now. Right. That's right. That's why we did the podcast uh, in the first place. Um, all right. Last question. We always like to end on this. Um, what's the next several years look like uh, for Narratize? Uh, what's on the horizon? We're going to completely transform how professionals write and communicate at work. We're going to start doing that inside of science, tech, and medical industries and scale from there. Um, we're so excited. You know, we heard some of the first users, um, you know, with Good Housekeeping Institute, they are they are already using Narratize to extract research reports and convert those into customer-facing insights reports that they can now upsell. That's a new revenue stream for them through the power of generative AI. Just this week, the World Food Forum announced their partnership with Narratize and innovators who are literally solving world hunger all around the world are using Narratize to write better pitches to get more research dollars and funding to support their work. And they had their big flagship week in Rome this week and uh, announced that partnership and several award winners wrote their pitches with Narratize. We're so excited to hear how critical societal problems will get solved faster thanks to the way we're designing this to be a co-author for innovators. Um, and I really, I truly hope, there we go. I think in three years, let's go solve world hunger. Um, no, in all seriousness, um, we believe 
every day we wake up sort of on fire because we know there's a solution out there to cancers. We know there are new therapeutics. We know there are um, fascinating new initiatives that need to be sparked and they need to have buy-in. And so many scientists, engineers, technologists, product visionaries have such a hard time getting the traction that they need to pull that all the way through into the right message to get traction in their markets. And we're excited for how Narratize is going to completely um, speed up the rate of innovation among the enterprises who use it. That's our goal, to turn it into a verb and help all of us use that power of story in our everyday professional lives. Love it. Love it. No, I love what y'all are doing because you're right. You know, if you can get behind the storytelling and the narrative of a company, you're, you are in a way helping solve world hunger and you're helping them spread the word and, you know, effectively communicate that to the world, which, you know, brings in so many things for the business resources wise, talent, the more effective you can communicate what your business does, the more you're going to attract talent. So I think the, the given problem and niche you're solving has outsized outcomes and outsized impact. And I love to see it. Uh, so thanks for coming on and sharing it with our audience. If people want to learn more about you and, and narratives, where can they go? Yeah, go to narratize.com. It's like narrative, but with a Z. You can find me on LinkedIn at Katie Trouth Taylor. So grateful to have the time with you, Evan. Thank you all for tuning in. We hope you all enjoyed. Before signing off here, I just wanted to take a second to thank a lot of the people that make Middle Tech possible. So first off, I wanted to thank JP Blevins for letting us use his space to record. Uh, a big thank you to Jacob Spencer, our executive producer, and Lamaya Stearns for uh, producing the episode and getting it out to all of you guys. And then a big thank you to TJ Barnett, Ethan Sharp, and Austin Short for producing all of our social content that goes out on our social channels. So uh, just wanted to make sure that we're highlighting everyone that makes Middle Tech possible. It takes a lot of work to do what we do. And I uh, wanted to make sure that everyone that plays a role in that is recognized and appreciated.